Well, welcome everybody. Episode 12 of uh, Whiskey Unscripted. I am Gordon Dundas and I'm sure by the wonders of the internet, Mr. Dallas is joining us from his uh, garden. Uh, well, yes. Uh, oh, yes, Gordon. Yes, of course I'm waking. Uh, <clears throat> working from How home. You, I'm, I'm very, very busy. Yes. Episode 12. How can you believe that? <laughs> Can you believe that? I, I can't believe it, and I can only I can only drink to that actually, Gordon. I can only it's a whiskey show, and I think we should get straight into it. I don't but you. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely, yes, 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 yes. I for episode twelve, I have got myself, and it's with Sean, uh, our Cooper from a few episodes ago, one of his favourites, the Tam Du Fifteen, absolutely uh, glorious. Yeah, that's a great whiskey, and and, yeah. and you know, it's just sherry casks and. Uh, Really blazing a trail for a, a 15-year-old, 46% only sherry cask. Which, when you think of the whole range of whiskies out there, there's very few that can say that. So, absolutely good choice. Good choice. Very good choice, Gordon. And you think when you're drinking that, your mouth will be quite dry, and all those tans will suck your cheeks in, but it is yeah. surprisingly fruity. So, so nice. Good, good. Yeah, it is very fruity. Fruity's what what about yourself, Gordon? I've got, well, I've gone to a little bit different. I have gone to a bourbon. Oh. Only because I actually was drinking quite a lot of um, Glengoyne and Tamdu in the last few days, just through socialising and things. So I thought for today I would have a bourbon, which is a very different, zestier product, obviously. I'm just drinking Maker's Mark, which is one of my favourite standard bourbons out there. It's a, it's a great whiskey. Uh, it, it also... You know, spelt without an e as well. So, um, uh, you know, that's quite an interesting part of it. But obviously, that that very famous red wax dipped bottle, and um, the main difference with it with other bourbons is it's actually made. Its mash bill includes a little bit of winter wheat, red winter wheat, which is uh, most bourbons are are corn, rye, and malted barley. This is corn, wheat, and malted barley. So it has a little bit of a different profile, a little bit of a a, a different style, but it's a fantastic bourbon maker's mark. So I'm having a little drama that. That's a, that's a really fascinating, and we have that conversation a lot with uh, our guest here about the the mash bill and how that can influence flavour in whiskies. Obviously, we talk about the wood and the maturation. I've just done that with the Tamdu 15, yeah. and but Scotch whisky can't really play about with the the mash bill as such. So can we get different strains of barley to influence the flavour, or is that not the case with scotch? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that there's been some small producers who have played a little bit, played around with barley. And, um, you know, I think, you know, over time, if you mature it in the right type of way, you will notice maybe a slight difference in terms of, in terms of barley varieties in a, in a, in a new make uh, and ultimately in a whiskey, quite possibly. But uh, the bigger producers, you know, the main thing you're looking for barley is the yield that you're going to get of alcohol ton that's a pretty standard amount of above 400 liters of alcohol pure alcohol per ton of barley so yeah i mean i would you know the the one thing you can't really play around with in scotland or anywhere is water because water is pretty much water if you know what i mean um uh the other one of course would be yeasts that are and there's a few distilleries are playing around with yeasts which is great but again that's another area that that the bourbon industry really does push differently maker's mark has its own yeast oh um, Jim Beam has its own yeast. Four Roses has five different yeasts. So, wow. um, you can change. The, you can change the flavour with the yeast. 
Oh, hugely, yeah, yeah, because it's how you then, you know, you, you can change the flavour with yeast because it's then how you, how you ferment, obviously, and then how you actually distill the temperatures as we know it at Glengoyne is really, really important. That's a big driver in bourbon as well. So if you actually work back from a bourbon, they've got one cask that they can use pretty much. The only variable on two, two variables with that is the char level, i.e. how heavy they char it from 30 seconds to maybe a minute. Um, will have a big and where they place it in their warehouses. That's going to drive the maturation difference. Where they can play a bit more is temperatures of distillation, um, mash bills, yeasts that differentiate them between each other. And wow. that's probably the main main differences. Love all, love all that, Gordon. My other question to you is, what are you drinking your bourbon, your maker's mark in? Well, um, <laughs> I am drinking it out of a... Glen Cairn glass. I'm glad you said that because later on in the show, as you know, I met up with over, you know, online with Paul Davidson, Mr. Oh, Glen Cairn of uh, the Glen Cairn Glass Whiskey Company. And I've got a great interview with him coming up. So, uh, Glen Cairn glass, as you will hear, was quite influential with mass enjoyment of nosing whiskies. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Very yeah. But Gordon, your job to start, we, see, we get sidetracked. We get sidetracked. The job is, have you got any news from the world of whiskey this week? Well, I have actually. And um, I've been looking obviously a bit on the whiskey news. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of the bigger producers now saying that obviously the next year, 2021, is going to be a little bit challenging in terms of, uh, you know, sales and things, which is you know, I think that's true of, of pretty much most people at the moment in the whiskey industry. I mean, we're probably, in a very simple way, doing a little bit better in the in the sort of online area um, and the specialist areas. Um, uh, and, you know, if you sell your whiskey in supermarkets, I'm sure you're probably doing a little bit better as well. We don't really particularly sell whiskey in supermarkets. But, uh, but the other thing that people forget is that there's not really any restaurants or there's not really any pubs open. There's a few more open in a few other countries, but certainly in the UK, there's still nothing open. So that cons the, the consumption in those areas has gone down. So, so yeah, it's still very challenging out there, not just for whiskey, but for everybody. But um, I noticed that Edrington was predicting a downturn in their sales for 2021. So, um, and I think that will be mirrored across the, the industry to a certain extent. So that's my main pickup in the news this week. Well, fingers crossed yeah. we're going to all no, have this big up time. I think we'll bounce back and I think it's just, but everybody's struggling everywhere. So we just have to be mindful of that and we have to keep, keep you know, talking, educating, getting people in to relax and enjoy their whiskey. Yeah. Now, Gordon, I'm going to prepare you for a couple of things. This is totally unscripted. Um, yeah. I've also done an interview with David Lapsley. I'll explain who he is, uh, up at Etov in Oban, and he's got a great story about meeting a complete stranger, having a wonderful night with whiskey. And I thought of you straight away. Um, how many people have you met? Never met them before, and you can have a great night because of the love of whiskey. I'm going to ask you that later on. You have a think about that. The other thing I want to have a think about, when we hear from Paul Davidson, Paul mentions that in a Malt Advocate magazine article of a number of years ago, he was very honoured, his company, very honoured to be in the top 10 of the 10 greatest things that have happened to whiskey in the last 100 years. One of them was the Glen Cairn glass, you know, being premiered in 2001. 
And I thought, I can't find the article, Gordon. Do you think after this interview, we could try and think of the other nine? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we could. I'm sure they'll be a bit different, but let's give that a bash. Right. And, and the last thing to say about this interview, we you, you intimated it last week. I have got all this equipment, but I had a nightmare of a technological disaster. So I sound like I'm in a, a broom cupboard, and he sounds fantastic. So... I do apologise for the sound quality, you but does that... You a broom cupboard. <laughs> it's a, a, a broom sauna cupboard. So apologies for my quality, but I think you can hopefully understand it as we hear from Paul Davidson of the Glencairn Company. How are you, Paul? I'm all right. You? Welcome to Whiskey Unscripted. Thank you. Nice now, to be here. Good. Well, the reason you came into my thoughts this week was because we did a virtual tasting at Glengoyne. And if anybody wants to do a virtual tasting, this is what the world we live in nowadays, you can go along to the website and join a virtual tasting. So we did one, and at the very end of it, we, you get a box sent to you, Paul, with a Glen Cairn glass and four small drums, and we do a tasting. And at the very end, I asked the group, when do you think that glass was invented? When do you think the world saw that glass? I've got the answers. Do you want to hear them? On you go. Okay. Uh, the first one was 1650. <laughs> 1780. 1800, 1887, 1950, 1912 was Lots of receptacles used for, for glasses, uh, for whiskey. And my dad had an idea, you know, 30, 40 years ago, whatever it was, to create a glass for whiskey because he couldn't get a glass that he liked when he went into the pub. So he thought about solving the problem, designed one, put it in a cupboard when he had it, forgot all about it, and then I discovered that maybe 20 years later, pulled it out, put it in my desk, and then he came into the office one day because I thought it was a wee attractive glass. And he came in and he said, wow, told me the story. And then from that moment, it got, we just grew legs and then it ended up where it is now. Actually, it really is amazing. Two things come out of that, Paul. One, I think people listening will be absolutely flabbergasted that in the home of Scotch, in Scotland, in the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s, and even 90s, we couldn't get a glass that fitted the, the liquid. Yeah. <laughs> Astounds, astounds you because everyone thought a tumbler, a normal tumbler, would was a whiskey glass, but it, a normal tumbler anywhere on the planet is just a tumbler. It, I mean, even when it came out it, at the beginning, I mean, I was when I had to commit to a, a large volume. Then I had when I had committed to the production of it. After we went through all the the, the designing element with the master blenders and stuff, I had to sell it. And then you're phoning up whiskey companies at the time. And loads of them all thought, wow, this is a great idea, and bought into it straight away. But there were others that were like, what? You off your head? Don't be so ridiculous. And then you, over time, it's, it's just grew and become what it is. But, you know, at the beginning, it shows you that some people, and I'm talking about marketing directors for some of the biggest companies in whiskey, just, no, that's not a thing. You know, I'm trying to come across with the angle of, look, this is going to help people to nose their whiskey, appreciate it more, um, nose it, 
get the same experiences as master blenders and connoisseurs are getting, they're like, nah, people just want to drink their whiskey and not talk about it. From people in the trade, and you know, it was astounding. And I was in short trousers at the time. So I didn't know my mars from my elbow, but it, it's grown, and it is what it is now. Astounding. It's absolutely astounding. Where, where did you premiere it? I read somewhere it was premiered in Whiskey Live in London. Is that true? That was the, the, the first Whiskey Live in London uh, back in 2001. That's when we took it down. We had some handmade samples done because the actual pr production wasn't ready. And that was us out to tout our wares and say, look, this is what we'll come up with. But it was, you know, it was greeted really, really well. But once again, it, it took a lot of work and a lot of effort to get it where it is now. You know, it's hard graft. I mean, Glencairn is whiskey. I can't think of another product that's so synonymous or so interlinked with another product than the Glencairn and the whiskey glass. Does that make sense? You know, oh, no, it complete sense. I, I mean, there was, a, there was a thing in America come out. There was a, they, they did, there was some article in Malt Advocate magazine or something like that. And it came out and it was the 10 greatest things that have happened in whiskey over the century. You know, and, and with maturation, maturation, use of wood, blah, blah, blah. And in the top 10 things, the, the Glencairn glass was in the top 10 things that ever have happened in whiskey. And you're like, what? Massive compliment, but it shows you that there was nothing that gave, a, nothing that could be used as a tool previous to the masses that educated people on how to appreciate their whiskey. You know, and that's all it is, it's a tool. And that's my question is, You've almost answered that there. Why is it just taken off? Why is it so successful? What does it do that previous receptacles didn't do? I think we just mentioned that there. Yeah, well, it enhances the, the whiskey drinking experiences. Um, you, it encourages you to nose your whiskey, if it, and that's half the pleasure of having a whiskey now. But 20 years ago, could you imagine all your whiskies were getting nosed in a tumbler? You don't get the effect. It's just a, this is a new thing. And it's partly driven by the, the, the rise in popularity of single malt over the past 20 years. So it was a lot of timing, fortuitous. Um, but that could be said for everything, because everything happened at the one time. There was Whiskey Magazine, Malt Advocate Magazine, the Glencairn Glass. A lot of uh, the smaller distilleries were getting bought over by innovative you know, guys who were enthusiastic in driving this new market forward. It must have been quite strange in those days late 90s, early millennium, when it wasn't really motoring as it is now. It was nowhere near, but you know what? It was really good fun. It was really good fun at the beginning. Everybody was enthusiastic, they still are, but at the beginning, getting to know all these different characters in the whiskey industry at that one time, I was fortunate, I've been supplying them for the 20 years previous to that um, with decanters and glass, other glasses. But So I knew a lot of them. But there was new people coming to the party, and it was just a good laugh, because it's good people. You know yourself, you, for the length of time that you've been in the whiskey industry, the people in it that you've met are a good laugh. They're fun. It's, it's not like going to work. I mean, there you, you're sitting in a shed having fun. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when did the business, when do you think it's now motoring? This one, we've done it. You said a lot of hard work, you know, but you need to push that up the hill and then suddenly it takes on momentum and it starts, you know, the ball rolling down the hill. When do you think we've got something? This is this is going to go places. I'm the prophet of doom by nature anyway. So I would say 
after five, six years, I thought, this is great. And then what happens, other people come along and try and copy you with their versions of it. But um, And that's fight all fair and well, and I don't get upset by it or anything. Um, it just encourages more education for people out there. But um, to have the original one and be able, you know, it, it's designed by five master, master blenders and others to help us get the shape because we didn't have all the knowledge. But to see what it is now is uh, mind-boggling because I, I, I never dream of it getting to there. Are we allowed to ask how many is out there in the world? Have you got an indicator? Oh, millions and millions. I mean, my brother Scott, he deals with all the figures. Um, but no, you're talking millions. They've probably got it listed somewhere on the, our website, but I don't look at that anyway. So a wee bit similar, not me. A lot of people have LinkedIn. I think we are more linked off than LinkedIn. Oh no, it's like, I, I, there's no way. I, I I actually clicked onto LinkedIn to see what it was when it came out, and then spent a year trying to delete it and get it to stop sending me emails. I don't want to know anything. I don't want Facebook because I've got two daughters that are 21 and 22. For the past decade, I don't want to, no way do I want to know what they're up to. I once, I once read a very good quote about how you, how you can kill social media, or how you can kill Facebook, is tell the kids your mum and dad are on it. Aye! <laughs> <laughs> well, they're gone. Paul, because um, we talked a couple of weeks ago about gifting. Glasses are a great, great gift for Father's Day, and we talked about gifting whiskey uh, as a gift, but also decanters. Decanters are, well, it's becoming a, even bigger. That was our original thing where my dad started out. It was, it was decanters were the main thrust of what he did. Um, supplying, you know, a lot of the companies now. All whiskey was it wine decanters? Or no, wine? no. It, well, it was a variety of different decanters, but his main client base was the whiskey industry. And what he was doing was, I mean, with your own company, you know, um, Leonard Russell was one of the earliest names I can remember when I was very young. You know, I'm talking when I was. Um, 13, 14, I knew the name Leonard. And then there was, you know, White Mackay, Inverhouse Distillers, because we came from Airdrie. Um, and these were all names that I remember. And we were supplying them with decanters. But what's happened now, then the Glencairn glass came along, that stripped that out. But in the past decade-ish, expensive decanters have started to come into the market. You know, and everyone who's interested in whiskey will have seen them splattered all over the place, you know, at 30,000, 40,000 pounds a whip. And that's become it. We are probably the main provider of those crystal decanters. You know, virtually all the companies that are doing um, 40, 50 year old whiskey, they're putting, their, putting them in premium decanters um, and deluxe packaging. And we are providing the decanters for that with all the, the adornment, you know, the metal, the, the engraving, the infilling. So it's the, uh, the, the, the metal is, is silver. Solid silver, brass, gold. There was a decanter recently where we were putting rubies on. You know, was, I think it was a cluster of you know, 30 or 50 little tiny rubies to make out what. I mean, it was some of the things we're using now and the techniques are uh, absolutely unbelievable. Um, but that's a department that my brother runs now and it's, it's growing every year. You've mm -hmm. already mentioned it. You've been all over Scotland. You're one of the sort of super salesmen of Glen Cairn. You like your football, is that right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, well, um, when I say like football, I like my football, but... It's what I team called Airdrie. So like is a, you know, pejorative. I mean, home and away, 
for since I was 12. I used to get three buses to get to a game um, when I was young. Um, dedication. And then you would go and it's decades of disappointment. But that's my Saturday. I used to go home and away and now I'm just home games. You like your football and you like music. Yeah, well, yeah that's my main driver, music. I know, I know what music... Uh, I know what music you like. So does the Stayside Festival. <laughs> the Bluetooth. <laughs> and upset everybody. <laughs> so, the point being, you like league tables. Football tables and uh, music tables. So I thought right, okay. you uh, help us out with some, some tables, leagues. If you had to recommend three whiskies to people listening, what would your three whiskies be? It's almost impossible. There's so many. And it's subjective, it's moods, the people you're with. It's an impossible question, you know. One and sweetie, one sweet cherry, one. For me, well, for me, I mean, I like light, fruity whiskey, right? That's my thing. And uh, the big hitters, you know, going to Isla or whatever, I'll never go there at the end of the night when I've had a right few because I think they overpower everything that I'll have after that. So, um, but they've got their place and moment. And the people, once again, it's the people that you're with that drive where you're going in the whiskey. I'm finding I'm drinking a lot more old-fashioned these days. Um, and I do like a whiskey sour. Oh, I still do like whiskey sour. So, well, you know, that's, um, we'll leave that, we'll leave that open top three. That, that, could be, that could be anything. It could be anything. I mean, if you're thinking of the first one I ever had, I used to, my dad used to have lots of whiskey in the garage uh, when he was first starting. And me and my pal would nick a bottle every now and then before we headed into town. So if I could go back and get one of those bottles, because it was all the same kind they had at the time when I was around about 17, 18, before I went clubbing, we'd nick a bottle and have it down the woods before we got a bus into Glasgow. I would love to try that again to bring, because at the time it was rotten. And But now I'd love to taste it again now, just to take the knee back to that time. Top three distilleries. Once this lockdown's over, would you recommend three places? There's lots of lovely ones. Off the top of your heads, what's three? It doesn't need to be in order, just three good places to visit. You've been all over the country, right? Uh, I've been to them all, just I, um, for years. I used to go up every um, January. It was brilliant. But you would just travel around, no one was busy, and you'd have, uh, they'd all have loads of time to see. If I was going to three, it's a great drive. If you're looking for a great drive, go to Talisker. There's a bridge now. Right, I know, but I would see that it was. I just used to love it. You didn't get a phone signal, so you couldn't get. No one could get a hold of you, and it was brilliant. If you live in the Glasgow area and you you work and you want a skive, Glengoyne's the perfect place to go because I've used it many times for many years. I've got a box to deliver. Where are you going, Glengoyne? And you're away for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> and if I was going another one, we'll go to the other side. And it's quite nice. Where would I go? I'd just go up. I'd base myself at the Highlander. And I'd tour Speyside. Your man likes his music, and so do I. But concerts. If And when we get able to go to a concert, I'm going to ask you albums in a minute. What concerts? Who's great to see live? I mean, you might not have to. I mean, this summer, I was going to go to most of the nights at the bandstand, um, Kelvin Grove. But it's been cancelled. A great live act, that's all, well, I've seen them so many times. Primal Scream, when they're on song, are absolutely amazing live. Places rocking. Um, 
they, I went with Richard Patterson last year to see Burt Baccarat. <laughs> was he good? He was absolutely astounding. The place was rocking. The guy's 92. I only took Richard because I thought he'd like to go and see somebody the same age as him. <laughs> <laughs> and another one, well, was going to see, I'm going to see the Pixies at SWG3. And hopefully, that's on the end of August, so hopefully we get all this corona sorted out before they play and I can get to see them. That's something, that SWGT, isn't it? Something. Ah, it's great. No good if you're dyslexic. <laughs> I'm having trouble. <laughs> <laughs> albums, okay, not live, just great albums. What would you recommend for people bored out of skull to go and download? Oh, God. It depends. I mean, that's a, my, my mix is eclectic. I mean, but, I mean, I love my punk. <sighs> I should did the Speyside Festival. They all knew you had a, an eclectic music taste. <laughs> um, I, number one, Susie and the Banshees, Nocturne. It's a live double album from the Albert Hall in 1984. Great album, live. Um, two, Special's first album. Absolutely right for the time just now with the Black Lives Matter and everything. The Special's would be ideal. And number three, something standard, Parallel Lines by Blondie. Oh, yeah. The first album I ever bought, although I bought two albums that day when I was in. I was 11 and I went into John Menzies and Airdrie to get them in between Christmas and New Year and I bought two albums. So I'd tell everybody that I bought Parallel Lines by Blondie, which I did, 100%. But the other album was Creps and Drapes. The <laughs> <laughs> final thing I should say is um, a family company. Yeah. Like E. McLeod. Does that make a difference? Yes. Absolutely. Well, I, I think it does. I think you you don't have to. I mean, everyone has to be nice in the business all the time. You get to cherry pick who you want to be in the business through interviews. I'll, I'll do the vast majority of the in, interviews for all departments personally to see if they're a fit. Or if I haven't done the initial ones, I'll always go in to do the final one. And then you create and build it the way that you want it to be. And then it hopefully ends up, everyone gets on fine and only people that fight are the family. <laughs> <laughs> Which we've always done, we've grown up doing that. How many have you employed? 65 now. Wow. 65. But, um, that's starting, a starting base of? Two. My dad and the artist and then I come along in the, oh, that would have been... 86 or something like that when I started and then I had a period out. So I've worked on it for the best part of 35 years. A Scottish family company. Super. Yeah, that's it. Scotland's Crystal. Crystal Company. I think we'll wrap it up there just now. Thank you so much for joining us in Whiskey Unscripted. It's been an absolute pleasure, Gordon. Thank you. So I hope you understood what I was trying to say there, Gordon. Just technology got to the better of me. <laughs> but very interesting to... to what I was out of that whole interview, I love the fact that Paul went to the Kelvin Grove bandstand with uh, Richard Patterson to watch Burt Baccarat. Where do you hear that in an interview? Well, no, I mean, that is incredible. And uh, if there's anybody who should be listening to Burt Baccarat, Richard Patterson is one of the first people I would think. <laughs> well, God, 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 I did mention before the interview there, did you hear that bit when he mentioned about the, the article, the 10 greatest things that have happened to whiskey in the last 100 years? Um, I can't find the article and a magazine before digitisation, probably. But I think we could have a wee go at, you know, what, what you think these developments have been. Right, okay, uh-huh. I'll I take you to the first one, I'll take you right back. 
Um, although it was patented in 1913 by the, I, I believe it's the grandson of William Teacher, a guy called William Bergius, whose name I never forget, he patented it in 1913. In 1923, the first cork that could be resealed was invented. So the reusable cork stopper, I think it was a Stuart's Cream of the Barley, with the, with the tagline, Billy, Bury the Corkscrew. So could that be one for our last 100 years you could now put the cork back in a whiskey bottle? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, it's it's not a, bad. It's a fairly... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you're having a, you're having a good enough uh, good enough session with your friends, then you don't need a cork. But yeah, no, I... Uh, <laughs> I would absolutely, uh, absolutely think that is a major change. Okay, that's, that's one. What, 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 what do you think, Gordon? Your measured thoughts on 100 years and whiskey's um, development? I think the globalisation of whiskey is a huge one. Brought right. um, on by the blends and the blends blazing the trail around the world. And if you, you, know, you just need to compare it to cognac, for example. You know, cognac many years ago, people drank a lot more cognac than than whiskey and. That has totally been reversed, and that is down to the collaborative way of the, work, the working of the whiskey industry, and also just I think the um, wonderful way in which you know I think there's we, we, we talk about, we educate, we, we 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 sort of promote the diversity within our, our whiskey category. So obviously, mainly blends in the early 1900s, and then malts are now on this trend of driving a a different type of. Uh, a different type of experience with whiskey, which a lot of people are wanting to do. So, um, I think I think that's a, a really nice sort of um, comparing it to the almost in reverse. How cognac has has really lost out to whiskey over the last hundred years, for sure. Yeah, it's a wee bit more than a hundred years ago. But there's that fantastic story about globalisation and Tommy Dewar before the advent of jet airplanes got on a boat for two years and sailed around twenty six countries and filled up his order book and appointed agents and come back and. And the industry was born, you know, the, the, the Dewar Empire. Yeah. Extraordinary, yeah, you know. Um, yeah, so Globalisation is great. Can I, you know, because I, I read a lot of them. Um, books and whiskey magazines, publishing yeah, houses. I think it all feeds into more understanding of whiskey and more, um, you know, sort of awareness of whiskey. So I think, I think they're a huge part of it, for sure. And uh, it, it also, they've had a lot to do with, I think, the image change of whiskey yeah. more in the last 10 or 15 years but but generally i think uh you know i think that's a, a fair one for sure yeah for, for, what's your whiskey, whiskey book whiskey book oh i've got a few here um difficult uh, a, a liquid history by charles mclean is quite a tome quite an undertaking and the whiskey distilleries that famous one by alfred bernard is is a big one as well with the Victorian yeah. gentleman went round virtually every distillery there was in Great Britain and then Ireland and this was in the 1880s what an extraordinary eccentric uh, individual yeah. that's a great book so there's there's two and uh, magazines so that's the cork globalisation books we need 10 Gordon number 4 have you got one? Um, it feeds a bit into what I was talking about a little bit which is more that you know whiskey whiskey became part of it's a big company thing, and and what I mean by that is, you know, your big Diageos and Perna Ricards have obviously got a lot of influence, and they they have a lot of route to market, um, so that's really helped with sort of more my first point. So it's almost more the sort of, you know, I guess it's still the first point, but it's more that the the, the 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 big companies have really helped push whiskey into 
yeah. into yeah. into into new markets, which if we were all just local producers, we probably wouldn't have got into. So you know, I think it's that sort of new market development that, that that's come about, which just relates a little bit to that last point. Well, sort of Paul did intimate, along with um, the Glen Cairnglass, he said uh, he thought there was a point about wood policy and maturation. And I suppose that would maybe refer in that article to the early 80s when the sherry casks from Spain were no longer allowed to be shipped out as transportation casks. And then the industry in Scotland had to go down to Spain and Hereth and have them custom made for us. Something that I'm enjoying right now with my Tam do. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, definitely. And that just shows you that you know, you create a, a need for something and it's that richer, darker style of sherry casks and, um, and and then they dry up. You have to adapt. You have to do things. You have to uh, you have to adapt how you produce your whiskey and that and that's exactly what was done. And, and you look at the supply of bourbon casks from the bourbon industry and you look at the, because they only use new casks, we yeah. buy all their second-hand casks. But there is a movement and I don't know where it is. I haven't caught up on the latest, but there's a movement that, bourbon should be able to be produced using casts that have been used before as well. Um, and that would have a, it would actually have an impact on the Scotch whiskey industry. So, um, you know, I think, I think overall the understanding of maturation, the understanding of wood and how important it is, has been a huge important factor in the last hundred years. Yeah, you've mentioned already, Gordon, about the, where, the where, where it was stored in the warehouses would influence the the maturation and ultimately the flavour. Very much so, yeah. Particularly in bourbon, not so much in, in uh, Scotland. I mean, it does have a difference in Scotland for sure. And certain warehouses have microclimates and different aspects that, that, that lead to a slightly different maturation. Um, uh, but if you're in a hot environment like Kentucky in the summer and a, and a cool environment in the winter, which it can get very cold in Kentucky, then you get variations that, you know, get very big variations depending on where whiskies are in the in the warehouse and wind directions and all these different things. So yeah, there's a lot to consider. That's yeah. Certainly, the knowledge has you know went from just being a magical process to now, as you say, more fully understanding that, that process. Mm. Could I have yeah. one that's maybe just um, spins off of the books and the, the magazines that uh, has grown around the whiskey world? One thing it has um, grown up is the festivals. Now, that yeah. certainly was not around, I would imagine, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And I know the Speyside Festival was 1999 that it started up. I'm not too sure when the Isla Festival started, Gordon, but... I think it was a bit after that. But but, so Speyside were in there first, yeah. and that was... I think they were, yeah. That's something, that really is... There are magnificent uh, events. Yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it sort of goes on with what we're talking about. It really shows the collaborative nature of the Scotch whiskey industry to have, you know, if you go to a whiskey live or a whiskey fest in America and you go to New York and there's 60 or 70 stands of bourbons and, and uh, Scotch whiskies and uh, all in one room and everybody's friends and everybody will, you know, and, that's, and that from a consumer perspective is a very attractive place to go to because it's not viewed as competition. It's a, it's an experience. And, and um, so that, that I think is a really big point, obviously the festivals in Scotland are very similar with the face shield having everybody having their own day um is really really interesting as well and uh, you know it really defines what their brand is about so and space site is, is you know it's an area where for four or five days five days every distillery puts on different things and lots of people come to scotland unfortunately they haven't happened this year but 
Yeah, really good point. Good that's, point. I think they had a big impact. Yeah. That's really good. I've got one up my sleeve, but have you got anything else, Gordon? We've got cork, that reusable cork, Scott. Globalisation, yeah. the big companies, books, publicity, um, publishing houses, wood policy, maturation, festivals. We've got the Glen Cane Glass. I think we've got three more to go. Oh, crikey. Right. Um, um, yeah, I think one would be there is more talent now in the whiskey industry than ever before. So there's a people element here. People. People. And that and it goes across the whole industry. Um, the one thing that makes the whiskey industry what it is, is whether that's people like Emma Newton we had on our on our podcast about six six weeks ago who's uh who graduated and understands blending and wants to be a blender and you know um has you know has a wonderful nose and ability to do it that's great or it's a distiller or it's a warehouseman or it's a it's a it's an ambassador it's a managing director it's a salesperson people have a lot of passion for the product and i think now what that passion is combined with is with real understanding and real in-depth knowledge of 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 the, of the process of little each little part of the whiskey production process so you know you can make a great whiskey but if you don't have a good blender you're not going to have a great whiskey and you're not going to have a great product at the end of it so i think that's a really strong point i think that's good i think it's really good you just you just you just mentioned about a really strong product i was just thinking categories could we well we certainly could have the rise of single malt in the later oh. part of the 20th century been a massive development for whiskey oh, for sure for sure and um you know single malt and scotch single malt uh, absolutely um you know i think um uh from my you'll see single malts are made all over the world but the secret to scottish single malt is our history because and our history leads to our diversity mm-hmm. um and actually it's inextricably linked to blends in terms of blends where the driver and still are let's face it but you know, the, the, the diversity of single malt is a direct result of our history of how blends were made using different styles of whiskey across Scotland. And that has the, that is the crux of the success of Scotch whiskey, as far as I'm concerned. One more to go, Gordon. Um, I can give a rundown of what we've got so far, but we've got one more to go. Is there any argument or have you covered it with equipment? Has it changed in the last hundred years? Well, yeah, I think it probably has. I think, you know, there's no doubt that, again, knowledge of distilling, knowledge of you know, how copper influences spirit, how uh, yeasts have changed. Um, not everybody would agree for the better, if we're honest. There's a mm-hmm. lot of people that hark back to the 50s and 60s and say, oh, whiskey was much better back then because of this, that, and this. And, um, you know, that's fine. It might be direct firing. It might be uh, yeasts. It could be, you know, all these kind of different things. But I think overall, the quality of whiskey is better now because of a lot of the things we've mentioned. But no doubt equipment is a large part of that and understanding of how you use that equipment as well. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a big one. Yeah, I, I know we're maybe over the 10, but just I just had, when you were talking there, Gordon, finishing. And I think Glenn mm. Morangy were one of the f- first people, were they, to get into the finishing? Was it Balvenie? I can't be too sure. But would that be something that... Glen did a lot of finishing, yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I think finishing, we don't do a lot of it in our whiskies, but that doesn't mean to say that if you do it correctly, it doesn't produce a good whiskey. So I think finishing comes under wood to me a little bit, uh, because you understand how a cask may have an influence on a whiskey for a short period of time rather than have an influence on a spirit for a longer period. That's it. Well, that's our list. That's our list. Um, I, I can't wait to try and find the uh, the original <laughs> list and see how far out we are. 
I know. Gordon, I asked you at the start there about um, strangers and whiskey, but I think maybe we could just have a quick listen to David Lapsley, because I'd love to get people's whiskey moments. We've got Claire Tesh. If you haven't heard last week's episode, she was fantastic, giving us her whiskey moment. You had to prize it out of her, though. Um, so have a listen to that. But this is David Lapsley, who's a sommelier a patron up in Oban at the Ed of Restaurant and he knows his whiskies. So have a listen to this Gordon and then I'm going to come back to you and ask you that question. <laughs> Here he is. Okay. Hi there folks, my name is uh, David, David Lapsley, I'm a uh, sommelier uh, patron at Ed of Restaurant uh, which is based in Oban. Um, Ed has been going for, this This should have been year three but uh, we're going to push pause on that next year to year three. But yeah, my whiskey moment, this is a whiskey, we were actually closed, uh, the restaurant was closed, I can't remember why, I think my business partner was away, and he was away for his birthday or something like that, so I decided, we had a really good whiskey collection in the bar, and uh, I decided it would be nice to do a Friday night, we didn't have any food service, and I was just, it was, you could come in for a drink, um, and, and this is when I tried the whiskey, but when I, I bought it, I was in Inverary, and I went into the, the wee shop, fine, uh, fine malts of Inverary. Uh, Andy, who runs it, super passionate guy. And, and uh, the minute I, I stepped in, he almost said the glass, I've got something for you, let me pour it. So he's pouring, and as he's pouring, he, he put a full bottle of this uh, whiskey on. So the whiskey was a Glenrothes uh, 2006. Um, it was a single cask, can't remember. It was a single cask, there was a number to it. It was a sherry cask whiskey, so it was right up my street. And as I'm, I'm looking at the bottle, he's pouring, I'm driving, and it's 60, 67.1% ABV. So I says, Andy, I, I, I can't even have that. I says, I'll, I'll nose it. And straight away, I bought it on the nose. Uh, it was super. Just everything, you know, lovely toffee, caramel coming through. It was, it was just a really, really great nose and dram. So I bought the bottle and took it home and it sat in the shelf and I never ever had the opportunity really to push it in the restaurant because I thought, you know, the high EBV would folk have that after a meal, blah, blah, blah. So because we were doing that night when John was away, this girl came in and uh, she said she'd been at Oban Distillery and they had told her that I was doing this night and I had a cracking list and if she wanted to try something, she should come down. So she popped in and uh, she was an American girl, I wish I remember her name, and she instantly sat down at the, 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 kind of the seat we had, the we makeshift bar we'd made, and she put six or seven journals on the table. So they were, the journals were Speyside, Highland, Lowland, and I thought, all right, okay, this girl's, this girl's, uh, she's known her stuff. And they, these were all her handwritten tasting notes, and she was the last one there, and I was actually toying with closing, so I was chatting away with some whiskies, and she was telling me whiskey she'd had, and she let me look through her notes, and I mean, were, she must have been all right. Her writing was just, it was it was perfect. But she wasn't in the whiskey industry. She wasn't, she didn't work in the industry. She just loved whiskeys. She tried a couple of whiskeys, and then I said, look, I've, I've got this one as well, if you, if you, because she had Glenrothes down. She wanted to try some Glenrothes, but she never had it. And I said, obviously, it's not the, the regular one. It's a, it's a special, and we, we talked about the bottle. And I said, if you don't mind, I'm going to actually have one with you as well because I've been desperate to try it. Uh, and I always said, I wouldn't just open it for me to try I'd wait till somebody came in. So she said, yeah, let's go for it. And uh, it was just one of those whiskies where, because of how I bought it, and I just bought it in the nose, and I've been sitting on the shelf, and I just always, when I walked by, I always looked at it and thought, I need to try that. I really want to try it. So when, 
when we, we did, we both sat silent for about five minutes, just nosing, because the nose of this drama was fantastic. It was, you know, bursting, all the sherry notes were coming out, like I said before, toffee, caramel, but it, there was a sweet shop, this too, you know, and just a really inviting nose. And then once you got past all that, there was a little bit of tartness. Cherries came through, I remember, and kind of red currant. No alcohol, which was the big surprise for me, uh, because, you know, it was, like I say, 67 plus percent. There was no hint of burn. There was no, it was just, it was just lovely. <laughs> and we just sat and nosed it. And then obviously tasted it. And, you know, the palate just, again, was an explosion of flavour and just coated completely coated your mouth without even trying it just seemed to get everywhere on, on your palate and uh, again all those caramel notes burnt sugar and just a lovely finish and it was just one of those twisties that I thought I wish I'd bought two bottles because I can't find it now if I love my money I've got about a tenth of the bottle left and it was just it was literally one of those whiskies where things just you just stopped I'm obviously passionate about whiskey this girl with the journal she had she was clearly passionate and we just sat in silence I'll always remember, I think I'll always remember that I've had what you could probably argue better whiskey since then, uh, you know, but I'll just always remember that night because the anticipation of trying that dram and, and just how good it was. And it was, the, it was the balance. I had it since where I added water and the water just, it just shot it. Now, you're obviously playing your own distiller at that point, but it, it, it just it didn't drink the same. So anytime I sold some in the rev and I did manage to get some folk interested in it. We obviously served it with water, you know, with everything they might need, but really there's not many times I'll tell people this is how you drink it. But that one was uh look, I've done it, I've put water in it and I've ruined it. <laughs> so I advise you taste it first. Uh and on the, the most part everybody kinda did that and they all they all had the same everybody that had it loved it. Uh, and it was just a a superb dram, and I mean, it was only 10 years old as well, um, but that was a stunning dram, uh, and that was one for me where time just stopped and got to enjoy it. So that was David Lapsley there, uh, Gordon, and I did ask you, you know, we meet a lot, you meet even more than I do, lots of people that you've never met before, you, you've got the commonality of whiskey, can you think off the top of your heads, sort of an event or a place when, you know, somebody's stuck out, <laughs> for the for the good? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think when I first went to, uh, when I first went to Kentucky as a wet behind the ears whiskey person, and um, I went to, funnily enough, and this is totally coincidence, I went to Maker's Mark and I met a, met a gentleman called David Pickerel, who um, understood who I was, gave me a tour, took me out for dinner, we drank whiskey, we had a great evening, and I was just struck by how you know how welcoming how hospitable he was and and um and and you know i'd obviously seen that in the scotch whiskey industry but i hadn't been to kentucky before and he was wonderful and unfortunately he's not with us anymore but he was a very gregacious sort of very wonderful sort of character who uh who, who i and made me understand a bit about bourbon in the in the the hours that i was with him so no a really really lovely gentleman brilliant never met him before there was also a gentleman when i was in the hague this year or was it last year? I can never remember now. This has been a very strange year. And they had a company where it's rare whiskies. And because they know of our association with Tam Dew, and I'm enjoying my 15, they went away and crossed and got Tam Dew whiskies from the early 70s and mm. gave me a drink of it. You know, he's dressed in a big kilt. He was 
Dutch with a huge yeah. beard. Um, never met him before in my life, and I said, "That's they're very expensive." And he says, "I don't keep them to sell them; I keep them to share them." And then he w- walked off. That is, that is very nice. That's about fifty quid a drop. So that was uh, so that was David Lapsley. Thank you to Paul. Where he lives and just stand outside his house. <laughs> sit with the big puppy dog eyes. Thanks to uh, Paul Davidson there as well, and Dick Gordon Dundas. Thank you to you. Yes. Now, just to say to our local listeners or regular listeners, not local. We'll be back next week with Data Zets. We'll be back with the year that changed whiskey in episode 13. Yes. We've just ripped it up, didn't it, Dave Gordon? Just giving it a little bit of a, a different spin. But we will see That's you. It's unscripted. <laughs> see you in episode 13, Gordon. Bye-bye. Hit the drums. <laughs>